But first, but first, it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday, isn't it? All right. Well, or so what, right? Don't really have, don't really have a team in this game, a, a, a dog in this fight, or... And yet, it is Super Bowl Sunday. I like football. I'll be, I'll be watching the game. And I, I don't want to tell you who to root for. That would be an inappropriate use of this opportunity that I have to tell you who you should root for. So instead of me doing that, let me just give you a, a biblical verse to reflect on through the game. <laughs> Isaiah says that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings... As eagles. <laughs> All right, I'll be hearing from the elders soon. <laughs> Hopefully that verse indicates to us that the second half will be better this year than last year. But seriously, about the Super Bowl. For those teams in that game, what's the goal? Well, if the Seahawks were in the game, you could say, well, the goal would be not to get too many penalties, Right? But that's really not the goal. The, the, um, now, 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 granted, the, the NFL seems to have more rules than Moses. I'm not sure what's a, what's a caught pass and what is not. Uh, there are all kinds of ins and outs there. But, but still, the goal is not to not get penalties. You can say, well, the goal is to not drop the ball. Well, you, it's good if you don't drop the ball, especially if somebody else doesn't pick it up and run with it. But, 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 but that's still not the goal. You said the goal is to, is, is to catch passes. Well, no, that's, part of, that's certainly part of it all, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't to grab the ball, hold on to it, not drop it, and run that way as far as you can. No, that's not the goal either, although that's certainly in there. The goal is to win the game. That's why these teams are going to battle it out over 60 minutes, not to play well for one half, Right? But for 60 minutes, for the whole game, the goal is to win the game. Oftentimes, we can get parts of things, things that are involved in the game, we can, we can in a sense, get confused about that being the goal instead of what the goal really is at the end of the day. Last year was a, was a great example of that. One of the teams won because they remembered that we're in a game for 60 minutes. It's not just about this great play and that great play, but it's grinding out over 60 minutes, and they stuck with it all the way to that end. We can easily, in the Christian life, have the same confusion. That the Christian life is about certain things that are involved in the Christian life, and yet they are not the goal. You can think about self-discipline about repentance, about guarding our lives from sin and from temptations, about, about pursuing things that are good, about exercising disciplines, about taking a prayer guide and, and, and praying for our community, for people around us. Those are good things, but they are not the goal. The goal in the Christian life is to know Christ and to show Christ to know Christ and to help others to know him also. The passages before us this morning reminds us that authentic discipleship, real discipleship, is not merely about Jesus and me. Authentic discipleship, to follow Jesus as Jesus walks, is going to be giving ourselves away for the sake of others. 
Following Jesus rightly is going to be helping others follow also. Now, we live in a context that's very egocentric. It's very individually centered. This is the land of the great individualist. And there are some strengths with that. There's some self-discipline and personal responsibility that comes out of that. Those are good things. And yet, if that becomes the goal, we have missed it completely. Authentic discipleship is about helping others follow also. That knowing Christ, that knowing Christ is about giving ourselves away for the sake of others because that's exactly who he is. That's what he did. And we'll experience that. We'll know him in following him in the same for others. So that's why I put it right at the top of our page this morning that that authentic discipleship is about helping others follow also. That's what I think would sum up well this Part of chapter 12 is before us this morning, but I could, I could do it in one, one verse that's within this section. In fact, it's verse, it's verse 15. And verse 15 summarizes, I think, what Paul is saying in the whole two paragraphs with this one statement that he makes in verse 15. And I'll, I'll even put it up on the screen for us. I want us to have this in mind as we read the passage where Paul says, he explains himself, he describes his ministry this way. This is what drives Paul. This is, this, is, this is his direction. This is how he sets his sail. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to, I want to unpack that sentence of Paul in verse 15 I want to unpack that with some of the other ways he expands upon it within the passage, but focusing on that one statement this morning. So keep that in mind as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. If you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us on page 970. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Except your children have something for you this morning. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And if I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. I got the better of you by deceit. Well, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him, but did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking that all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? That this letter is about Paul defending his ministry to the Corinthians. It's actually not. He said, it's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for building you up, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I fear that when I come again, my... God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. That one statement, 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, would you indeed open your word to us? Lord, we sing of ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. Lord, that's our desire this morning, that your word would change us, that your word would have its work in us, that you, as the psalmist said, would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know something more of the hope of your calling. What are the riches of, of your inheritance, God, in your saints? What is your great power toward we who believe? Father, show us these things this morning. Press the burden of this passage, that of gladly giving ourselves away for the souls of others. Lord, press that upon us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, first of all, I will most gladly. I will. There's an intentionality here. There's a, there's a choice to be made here in following Christ, you see, because obedience is not our first impulse. Anybody have any difficulty with that? Obedience is not our first impulse. Our own will is, our own way, what I want to do. Started from the garden, it continues now. Obedience is not our first impulse, and deference to others is not our default. Yielding is done intentionally. One specific choice at a time to do something that serves another and to choose not to tell others that you did so. To choose to do what's, what it's right even if it doesn't seem that anybody else would know. But I will choose. I will. There's an intentionality in following Christ. He says, I will most gladly. And he's talking about that giving of himself. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And he, and he unpacks that in terms that speak of parents for children. I think parenting is a great analogy for discipleship. Parenting is a great analogy for the spiritual relational care of others and leading others on to spiritual growth in Christ. Because parenting is one of the greatest joys and heaviest burdens that you can take on. Parenting, like discipleship, is one of the greatest joys. I didn't hear any amens there. And heaviest burdens that you can take on. What do I mean? Well, when they're babies. When they're babies, it's hard work, right? When they're babies, it's hard work, but you think to yourself, but it won't be long. Soon, they'll be out of diapers, and they'll be feeding themselves, and then it'll be easier, right? <laughs> oh, you've been through this already. <laughs> but then, by the time they're out of diapers and feeding themselves, they're about two. And they say no. And they ask why a, a thousand different ways. And in feeding themselves, they're throwing food everywhere. But you think, but when they're older, and when they go off to school for a bit, oh, then it'll be easier. At least I'll get a break in the middle of the day. But there, they make friends. 
with those terrors down the street. They learn all kinds of new delinquencies that you had not introduced them to. Meanwhile, they're growing through shirts and shoes in six months that would have lasted you for three years. But you think, when they get a little older, when they're teens, you know, maybe they'll leave, be able to help some then. Maybe they'll get, a, get some part-time work. They'll mow lawns. They'll babysit. They'll do something. They'll have a little of their own money. They can buy some of their own clothes. You're looking forward to the teen years? Well, the teen years come and the groceries go, especially with teen boys. Let me tell you something else about teen boys. Teen boys make some of the dumbest decisions on the planet. I was one once. I know what I'm talking about. And it's not their fault. It's a developmental thing that, that, uh, that, that in their brains, the part of the brain that, that has ideas and that... that um, that makes initiatives and choices, the, the part of the brain that says, hey, dude, I've got an idea. I know what we could do, is developing much faster than the part of the brain that analyzes and perceives potential consequences. It does the whole risk-benefit analysis thing. That, that happens, but it comes later, you see. And so along the way, before that develops, teenage boys come up with all kinds of ideas and make some of the stupidest choices on the planet. They could be in Congress. <laughs> so you say, so you say it's a good thing we've got girls. Well, let me tell you one of the problems with teen girls. For some inexplicable reason, they're attracted to teen boys. <laughs> now see problem number one. But you say, finally, as they grow up and, they're, and they're, they're older teenagers, at least now they get their driver's license, they can drive them. I'm not having to drive them around all over to all of their things and stuff. Right. You're sitting home at night wondering where the blank they are. <laughs> and even though you're not driving them around anymore, you're still pushing them to this and that and getting them to be involved and participate in all these things because somebody told you somewhere along the way that these are the things that you have to do to build their high school resume so that they can get into that special college so that you will have the privilege of mortgaging your life all over again to pay for the tuition. But one day, one day through all of this, they'll be adults and they'll be on their way out of the house until they come back. <laughs> Parenting. I rest my case. It's one of the greatest joys and heaviest burdens that you can take on in life, right? And discipleship is like that. Discipleship will be one of your greatest joys, and it will be a heavy burden when you decide that you will most gladly but you'll most gladly take on that burden because that is the very place, and every parent understands it, this is the very place out of which that greatest joy comes. 
Paul describes discipleship in parenting terms in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 from verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And how was that expressed? You remember, brothers, our labor, our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are a witness, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you who believe. For you know how, like a father and his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It would have been so much easier to write down a few things, to give them a list, and to go on his way. But Paul gave himself for them, like a parent does to children, like a mother, like a father. And along the way, parents have the joy of watching their children grow. Discipleship is like that. Verse 13 of the same chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen even as they did. Discipleship rejoices in that growth of others. Authentic discipleship is about helping others follow also and gladly giving ourselves to that end. Authentic discipleship that helps others follow is one of the greatest joys that we can have. John the Apostle in 3 John Little tiny postcard just before the book of uh, Jude and the book of Revelation. Third John, he writes this. I'll put it up here for you. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And parents can grab hold of that just in the parent-child relationship. When we hear how our kids are doing out there and we hear of them walking in the truth, that thrills our heart. Paul expresses in that same 1 Thessalonians 2, that same chapter we were reading from, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? We tend to think of the future. We think of eternity and our, our being in the presence of God. And we, seem to, we tend to think of that in terms of what have I grown into? How have I yielded myself in ways that were spiritual growth in me that when I stand before the Lord, he's going to tell me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, well done, thou good and faithful servant, looks like giving myself away to others. Because my joy in the future My glory is not going to be, and look, Jesus, what I've made of myself. No, it's going to be those whom God has been pleased to use me in their lives. They're the ones that I'm going to rejoice in. Even as a proud parent, you know. You get together with them, and if you you, you mess up, you ask the question, hey, how's your grandson doing? And he takes out the phone, and now you've got picture after picture after picture after picture after... Why? 
Because that little, that little grandson or grandchild or, 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 or their, their son or daughter in, their, in, in life's victories and successes, that is their joy. And so it is spiritually in discipleship. The goal is not merely getting ourselves across the finish line. The goal is helping others follow also. To do that, I will most gladly spend and be spent. Giving and serving. Spend and be spent. Generously giving of ourselves in our time, our treasures, our relationship, our energy for others. I will most gladly spend, he says. Don't ever let church finances be merely about finances. Don't ever let giving be merely about the budget. That I will most gladly participate with what I have that extends the reach of the gospel to others. That, that facilitates ministry to others, to family or to men and women or to people over here. Or our support and participation with that community ministry or what's going on halfway around the world, that we have a partnership and a participation in that. And I will gladly give something of what I have to participate in that way. Discipleship is about reproducing that other-centeredness in others. Paul is giving the, the, the Corinthians an opportunity to participate in this giving project for Christians in Judea and in Jerusalem. He gives them this, this opportunity. Why? Because they need to give. Otherwise, listen, him, him continuing to bring this up and help the Corinthians do this, it'd be a lot easier to just say, Lord, would you provide, please, for those Christians in Judea that are having such a hard time. Father, they are your children. You are their father. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Father, would you sell some of those cows and take care of your kids? That'd be a lot easier than trying to get the Corinthians to help. I mean, imagine a, a fundraising campaign in self-centered Corinth. That is not a joy, except when they participate, when they join in giving themselves away for the sake of others. You see, there's been some tension here because Paul would not allow them to, to support him. He didn't receive from them because in that cultural context where a, a, a wealthy patron would, would, um, would support an artist or an entertainer or an orator. They would be the client and the wealthy person would be the patron. And this, it was not unlike in, in some eras in England where the, uh, the pastor for that area was given a, a home, even a chapel was fully supported and paid by the particular, the particular nobleman in the area and became that person's preacher so to speak, carrying out their agenda. There's a cultural background here that Paul doesn't want them to get confused in as if they are the parents and he's the child, as if they're the patron and he is the client. They, they, they're not ready yet to give to him because they need to receive from him. And yet, it's important that they give, and so, so Paul wants them to participate in this project where they would give themselves away for the sake of others. This is not denying that the church should provide for their leaders. He's gonna, he told them in the first letter, chapter 9, that he had the right to be supported, he and a family, didn't he, in, in, in his ministry, just like we support ministries, or, or just like we support missionaries. Uh, later, Paul's going to tell Timothy that shepherds in the church who serve well, especially those who labor in the word of God and teaching, are worthy of a double portion. Now, if we're talking about potlucks, I'm in. 
double portion, that double honor. Now think about that. He's, what he's saying is those who shepherd in the church, that, 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 is, that is worth supporting. In fact, that's worth paying more than we pay other people for other things. And yet, in the church, most pastors that I know have been and could be paid more if they did the same kinds of things in their giftings and ability with a same kind of level of education in a similar secular work, they would earn more. So the churches don't pay double honor, they actually pay less. And that's okay. That's okay. Why is that okay? Because God estimates things differently. God values things differently than the world does. And, and God says that they are worthy of double honor there. And if they don't get it there, he'll take care of it. The pay may not be so good, but the retirement is out of this world. I would not dare to complain about ministry pay because most of you give yourselves in ministry and are paid nothing for it. And that's okay because God values it. And God has said this. God has said this. He said that God is not unjust. He's not unfair to forget, to overlook your Ministry and labor of love in that you have ministered to the saints and do serve. God will not overlook it. God will not forget it. God will vindicate it for your ministry, for your service that might not be recognized, might not be known, might not be celebrated, certainly is not paid for. God will cover that. God will rightly esteem it. But Paul did not claim that right to be supported by them because he doesn't want to confuse their, their receiving from him in terms of him receiving from them. The enemy might whisper lies and suggestions the church just wants your money or, or, or Paul is just telling you things you want to hear because the church is paying him to say those things. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent, giving or serving. It's about devoting our resources and ourselves for others to know Christ. In this church, we do want to be a giving and serving church. We want to be in this together. That we are giving together and that we might participate together in things in this community, in things within this body, and in things far from here. We want to be serving together in ways that, that, that build up as Paul said, this is for your building up. We want to be participating in things together that are for the building up of the body, of the building up of the family as a whole, and the extending the knowledge of Christ to places far from here that any of us would never touch on our own. We want to participate in that together. In a church, we're in this together. It's not, I will spend so that the pastor will be spent. I will give so that the pastor will serve. No, 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 we're in this together, both giving and serving. To paraphrase a former president, ask not what your church can do for you. We grow up in an American consumer mindset, right? But ask not what your church can do for you, but ask, ask what you can do for Christ's church and what Christ might do in you and through you for his kingdom. For example, High school students and leaders were here yesterday picking up huge piles of dead, rotting leaves and washing the green off our white vehicles. Did you know our bus was actually white? And it's white again. 
And we do that because we care about how we care about our things reflects on the name of Christ. And when you have a bus going down the street and it says church on it and it's covered in green that, that, that rolled down from off the cedar tree, that doesn't reflect well on us. Not to mention the teens say, I don't want to ride in that. So great. They rolled up their sleeves and got to work. I could take that a little farther. You know, identify it with Christ on, on, on the things that we drive. You have a Jesus bumper sticker? You have a Jesus bumper sticker on your car, then please don't be driving like it looks like you're going to enter heaven any second now. <laughs> Why? That doesn't reflect well upon our Savior or upon our faith. Continuing the car theme. You buy a used car, not a new a used car, not a new car. Why? Because you're supporting two missionaries each month in their gospel work. You come early, and you could go to one of those really great Bible classes that we have on Sunday, but instead, some mornings, you give that up to watch babies in the nursery, kids in pre-K, so that those kids will have a foundation of faith being laid for them here in the church family, even while their parents can devote themselves in worship and in some of those classes. Or maybe you give yourself to teach kids in one of those really great classes every Sunday all year long. What you're wearing this morning, it's not really on the cutting edge of fashion because you're really generous to meeting the needs of others. You're willing to be known for your faith at work or at school, even if you take some heat for it, even if you take some ridicule for it because you want to lay out the welcome mat for somebody around you at work or at school who might ask you, to give them an answer for the hope, the faith in Christ that is within you. And if they're going to ask you, you have to be known for your faith, and so you're willing to take whatever else is going to come with that for that opportunity. At home in the evening, someone comes to mind. You pray for them. Maybe you even call them and missing the season finale of The Bachelor or some other worthless show to listen and to care for somebody else's trouble. That's what it looks like to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. I will spend and be spent, Paul says, for your souls. And this pushes us in the right direction. There are many things we can be involved with as a church. There are all kinds of needs around us. And our community will be delighted if we were to get involved in many things. But all the things that we do must point to one thing. And that is especially the care of souls. People's eternity is at stake here. And we have been given the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ. It's, there are openings and opportunities now for churches to be involved with schools in ways that in, in our states, Oregon, Washington, that wasn't allowed not long ago. We've had a great relationship with Prairie High School. They're our neighbors. Jesus says, love your neighbors, so I'm sorry they're stuck with us. But I'm reminded, I'm reminded along the way that of something that somebody told me several years ago. They said, we have to be careful that we don't spend eight years buying backpacks for school kids and never telling anybody about Jesus. We need to find the ways that we can serve real needs in ways that care for the souls of the people around us. I will spend and be spent for your souls. 
Paul's not been defending himself here. Verse 19, he said, do you think I was writing defending you? No, the things that I'm written, the things that I'm saying, these, I'm poking you. These are for building you up. These are for challenging your assumptions and how you've been evaluating the world around you, how you've been evaluating each other, how you've been evaluating, deciding whether you're going to listen or not to Paul, how they're going to listen to God's word. His confrontation is, is carefully and persistently aimed at building them up, not fault-finding. There's a concern for the very real danger that threatens our spiritual lives. We're not playing. People here are, are, are casualties of a casual carelessness. Casualties of a casual careness, carelessness in life. We don't want to pry. We don't want to nitpick. We don't want to be nosy. We don't want to be judgmental. But whose spiritual life are you concerned for? Think about that. Pause right now. Whose spiritual life are you concerned for? I suspect that for many of us, of us, one of the first things that came to mind, the first people that came to mind were people in our own family. For parents, it's sons and daughters, isn't it? It's grandchildren. Maybe it's a husband or wife. Maybe it's parents. But is there the possibility that we sometimes, we sometimes confuse family affection with spiritual devotion? And if my spiritual concern is limited particularly to those in my own immediate family, maybe that's family affection expressed in spiritual ways rather than spiritual devotion that cares for Christ's family and how it grows. Paul says these Corinthians, he had no other connection with, and he had many reasons to walk on by, to let them go their way then. But he will not. He cannot. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And he's willing to confront them. And he tells them, folks, this is my fear. This is my concern. I, I'm afraid that when I come, I'm going to find some things among you that are not good, that are not flattering. I'm afraid in verse 20 that I'm going to come. Perhaps there might be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. A lot of that is others-directed. A lot of that is separating. A lot of that is thinking down on somebody else and maybe gathering together in fractions, factions and divisions. Schisms were common in Corinth. We know that from the first letter. Gathering ourselves against others who don't see things the same way, who don't practice what we practice, who don't draw lines in the same places who participate in things that we know better than and no longer participate in. And so we separate ourselves from them that they won't defile us. And, and we talk about them. We tell lies or slander about them. Or we even tell, well, it's true and you need to know. And, but it's still gossip. First of all, is it true? Second, does this person need to know this? Is this going to be helpful to the person that it's about or hurtful? Those are key questions to ask when you're, when you're talking about someone to somebody else to be sure it's not gossip or slander. But how does, that, how does that come about? Well, he hints at it in the next verse. Look at verse 21. He's also afraid that this attitude might prevail among them. Now, this, now Corinth is in a culture. Corinth is in a very, a very sexualized culture. 
Corinth was a place within the Roman Empire which was infamous for its immorality. It was known among the Roman Empire the way that America is known around the world. Corinth was known in the surrounding area the way that Vancouver, Portland is known around America as a place particularly free-minded and sexually liberalized where what the Bible calls sexual immorality flourishes and is approved of. That's the environment that we live in and it easily affects us. Paul is concerned. Look at verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. I may have to mourn over many who sinned earlier, who sinned previously, and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He doesn't say they're still practicing it. He says, in fact, that they practiced it previously, and yet they haven't genuinely repented of it in a, in a sorrowful I open confession, Lord, this is who I am. This is what I do. I need your forgiveness for these things. No, you know what we do? Oftentimes, we manage our sin. We push it down. We don't do that anymore. At least, not nearly as much as I did before. And then what do we do from there? This links us back to verse 20. We now look down on, we now talk about those who do without a genuine humility and heartbreak toward them because we see ourselves as sinners like them who, Je- who, who Jesus died for. No, we see ourselves as righteous and they as less so. And that easily then goes right back into the slander and the gossip and the factions and the arguments and on it goes. So I expressed it this way, that there's two potential responses. In the midst of a sinful culture, there's two responses that Christians can have. One of them, Paul describes here, is a self-righteous separating ourselves from others. And the other one is a careless capitulation to the culture. A failure to rightly confess sin as sin. And I want to suggest to you that the second one can lead us right back into the first one. What is it that fosters a sense of humility and a concern for the souls of others than an identification of ourselves as broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior? Then I'm not up above somebody else. I'm not more righteous than somebody else. I have experienced what everyone else also needs. We all are in desperate need of the Savior. And that kind of level ground at the cross is a great place to extend an invitation from that doesn't lead us back into that pride that separates us from people. And that brings me to this table that's before us this morning. Because this table is intended to be a reminder of that. We participate in this table where we're reminded again that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And that we participate individually and equally in it. None more or less than others. It's all level ground at the cross. I needed Jesus to lay down his body for me. You needed Jesus to pour out his blood for you. you. And it's not a matter of, you know, I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's I confess that Jesus died 
for me. That's saving faith. And that's what we confess together when we come to this table. I'm going to invite those who are serving this morning to come up. The worship team's going to come back up. And I invite you to join with us in this table on these terms. That this is the table to celebrate that I participate personally, individually in Jesus' death for me and for us. You say, well, no, Pastor, I never, I never put it quite in those personal terms before. To me, it has always been that Jesus died for everybody. Yes, he did. And Jesus died for me and for you. And I'd invite you right now, as we prepare ourselves in prayer, I would invite you to, to pray with me that confession. You could be uncertain if you've ever done this before for yourself and right where you're sitting without raising a hand or standing or coming, you could right where you are join me in a confession of faith in Jesus who died for you, for your guilt, for your forgiveness and acceptance before God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the Son of God, the creator of everything, Jesus our Lord, emptied himself. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross that he might give his life in our place, that he would take upon himself the penalty for sin, that in his death, my guilt could be removed, forgiven. Well, I don't even know how all of that works, but I accept your word that Jesus died in my place for forgiveness of my sins as my Savior. Lord, I believe you that I can have eternal life with you in Jesus' name by trusting what he did for me. And Lord, this morning I confess for the first time or I confess all over again that I needed Jesus. Forgiveness in his death for me, for my sin. And I accept it again, cleansed by him all over again. In Jesus' name, amen.